Good morrow, friends. I'm Jordan, and this is Not Strictly History. What I need to start out by saying is that I'm actually super into the intro music that I found. Um, Episode one, right out the gate, I'm telling you that. Now, if all goes well, It'll probably be one of those things where like a hundred years from now, somebody's listening to this and they've listened to like later episodes and then they hear this episode and they go, OMG Jordan, why did you ever, ever, ever use that intro music? But for now, I'm into it. So hello, everyone. Today, we're going to jump right into it. Um, For our very first episode, we're going to jump into the life of one of recent history's most fascinating characters, Mr. Al Capone himself. I have to be honest about a personality trait with you right up front. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by the mafia. And to be honest, I know that I'm not special. This A lot of us feel this way, so like it's cool. But I low-key, maybe middle-key, feel like if the mafia were to just show up at my door and say, hey, want to join the mafia? I, I would have to stop for a minute and, and consider the consequences, probably, because I consider myself a good person. But then I feel like my... I would just have this duty to say, um, look, Mr. Mafia, sir, I have absolutely nothing to offer off. Wow. I can't speak already. We're a minute into this podcast guys. And I can't speak. I would just have to say something like, look, I have nothing to offer you. I'm a historian. I'm an author. I, I research. That's what I do. But yes, absolutely. I'd love to join the mafia. Where do I sign? Um, so this wildly plausible scenario to the side, yes, I have a deep fascination for the mafia, which brings us to the OG man himself, Mr. Al Capone. Now listen, maybe someday we can have like a whole series on all the members of the mafia that we somehow know as household names. Can we talk about that for a second? How, how do we, how do we know that? Like, why is that a thing? I don't understand. But anyway, today we're just going to start with Mr. Capone because... It's Al Capone. But anyway, it seems kind of like I'm rambling, and so we're just going to get into it. Alrighty, so one thing that I need to also kind of establish here is that I have an Italian friend named Eugenia. I met her at grad school in London, and besides being wonderful in every way, she tried her very, very best to help me understand how to say Al Capone's parents' names correctly. Um, because they were from Italy. They came over to the United States. And because they were from Italy, I had really wonderful intentions to say their names the way that they would have probably liked them to be said. Um, And Eugenia tried, and I tried. And I'm really white, just incredibly white and American. And it just, it didn't work out. And I can't, I can't say their names the way that they need to be said. But I feel like it's important that you know that I tried, okay? So I just, I need you to know that. So Al Capone, he was born Alphonse Gabriel Capone in January of 1899. His parents had come to to the United States a couple of years before, and they settled in the Navy Yard section of Brooklyn, New York. Um, Okay, I did not know that Al Capone was from New York, and I'm a little shocked and appalled at myself that I didn't know that. But here we are. I didn't know that. We're all learning. So when he was 11 years old, they moved, but they were still in Brooklyn. They moved to 38 Garfield Place in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And Al was one of nine children, which is totally 
crazy and also makes sense because of the time that it was in. Um, most of the kids were boys. So Al had a, had several brothers. Um, he had brothers, Ralph and Frank, who later worked with him in his criminal empire. They were kind of like his right-hand men. He had another brother who was named James. And interesting fact, James later changed his name to Richard Hart and he became a prohibition agent. I'm not going to super go into any more of that because it's a long thing. It's not directly about Al. And to be honest, um, Richard Hart wanted his name changed and a different story told. So I'm just going to leave him alone. But that is an interesting tidbit. If you have any more information on that, let me know. Um, so we're going to go back a little bit to Al as a child. So Al Capone showed a lot of promise as a child. He was really smart, um, which makes sense. I mean, he later had a criminal empire, but so he had all this promise in school. He was really smart, but um, shockingly, <laughs> please notice the sarcasm in my voice. He did, had a kind of a problem with authority. So he didn't do super well in school because he didn't like following rules. On top of that, it was a pretty strict Catholic school. So I think he was just set up to fail from the beginning. And by that, I mean, I mean a lot of things, but by that, I mean, maybe he should have just listened to his teachers. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. He was actually expelled at age 14 because he hit his teacher in the face, his female teacher in the face, which is a huge yikes. We don't like that. Um, when I told my little sister about that, she kind of just nodded and went, yeah, that makes sense. So here we go. Al Capone never finished school because he was expelled at age 14 for hitting his teacher in the face. No snaps to Al Capone. Um, but after that, he started working odd jobs all around Brooklyn. Um, he worked at a candy store and a bowling alley. And for a minute, it feels like that was wholesome. Like just for a second, as a 14-year-old, he worked at a candy store and a bowling alley. And I want to believe that that was wholesome, but I think that's because I want to find something good about this man. And I can't figure out why. I think it's because he's such a fascinating character and because he's so fascinating and people are so intrigued by him, I think we have this tendency to just want to find something good in him or something that makes him worth looking at. I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, when he was 14 and working at a candy store and bowling alley, I want to believe there was something good there. But again, we have no way of knowing. So in the years 1916 to 1918, Al Capone actually played semi-professional baseball. I had no idea, okay? I had absolutely no idea that he played baseball and that he was actually really good. But this, is, this brings about an interesting little tidbit, friends, because for some reason in my brain, there has always been this really, really weird little thread connecting Al Capone to Babe Ruth. And I don't know why. I couldn't tell you if you asked me. It could be because, and when I was little, I saw pictures of them and maybe I thought they looked alike. Maybe I heard the baseball fact somewhere. I don't know. But in my head, they've always been a little bit connected. I can't figure that out, but here we go. Okay, so he played semi-professional baseball for two years, okay? It was then that he came under the influence of one Johnny Torrio, who he really looked at as a mentor. Now, 
little Johnny. Um, I have so much to say about Johnny. And the thing is, I try, I'm trying really hard to just not be fascinated by him and to not say this guy was so cool. But, um, goodness, he, he was so cool. He was known as the Fox, the brain, Papa Johnny, terrible Johnny. Um, it's just like, there's so like, oh, Johnny Torrio people. Okay. Um, so Al Capone comes under the influence of Johnny and, a lot of things are happening, okay? But one of one interesting thing about Johnny Torrio is he's that kind of, you know, 1930s criminal that you're thinking about, okay? He's the 1930s criminal that the government officials are, like, weirdly respectful of. And they're just like, dude, I don't understand how he's so good at what he does, but he is. And they're oddly into it. And you can see why, because when you learn more about Johnny... You're just like, bro, why didn't you use your powers and influence for good? Why? Like, what were we thinking? Like, really? But anyway, so like, for example, um, Elmer Iray. I don't know how you say that. I'm so sorry, Elmer. He was a U.S. Treasury official, and he considered Johnny the biggest gangster in America. And he wrote, quote, he was the smartest and I dare say the best of all the hoodlums best referring to talents, not morals, which I love. Thank you for clarifying. And then a crime journalist by the name of Herbert Asbury said, as an organizer and administrator of underworld affairs, Johnny Torrio is unsurpassed in the annals of American crime. He was probably the nearest thing to a real mastermind that this country has yet produced. So I'm sitting here like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) This crime boss he was so magnificent that this journalist who was very well-versed in crime is saying that this man is probably the nearest thing to a real mastermind that America has yet produced. Crazy, crazy town, okay? But that shows you what kind of a person Johnny Torrio was. And Al Capone became under his influence, and he actually, he started bartending at a club that was owned by Johnny Torrio's partner. And he would bartend and sometimes he would be a bouncer. And this is where his famous, infamous, I don't know, you could probably say both words. This is where Al got his scars on his face. So one night he was working as a bouncer at the bar and um, a woman was coming through the door and he made fun of her, which again, pretty much checks out. And her, but her brother was with her and he was really not cool with that, with Al making fun of his sister. And so her brother slashed the left side of Al's face three times. Crazy town, right? So that's what gave Al those scars on his face and the nickname Scarface, which he absolutely hated. I think most of us know that about Al Capone. He hated hated that nickname. Most people only dared to say that about him when he wasn't around. Um, so he hated these scars. He, every time that he was pictured, like taking a photograph of, he would try and hide them. And he often tried to pass them off as war wounds, um, which is not cool. You did not serve in the military. You were not in war. You were just a jerk to some lady. So how about you don't try and pass that off as a war wound, sir? 
That's just my hot take. So Al Capone got his famous scars. Now, at around this same time, Al Capone actually got married. He and his wife, May Josephine, were married on December 30th, 1918. Um, They were both Catholic. They were married at the St. Mary Star of the Sea Church in Brooklyn, which I loved. I've never heard of this church, this specific church before, Um, but St. Mary Star of the Sea, I just thought that that sounded really lovely. I don't know. Maybe that was just me, but it was really interesting because, um, well, their ages were a really interesting thing. So Al got, when they got married, Al was 19. And because he was under the age of 21, his parents actually had to give legal consent to the marriage. They had to give it in writing. Um, but then on their, I almost said birth certificate, wrong legal document, Jordan, on their marriage certificate, they both changed their ages so that it looked like they were the same age, um, which is really interesting. So um yeah that um yeah that happened wow really professional jordan guys it's episode one i am trying so hard and i think i'm failing miserably please bear with me we'll get better i promise al got married at age 19 to may josephine coughlin in brooklyn new york okay um it was really interesting because she had actually they had a son together and he was born earlier that month and his name was Francis there his name was Albert Francis Capone um but they always called him Sonny and I looked into May quite a bit and she guys May Capone was an incredible woman and gosh I should probably just do an episode all about her she was actually I feel really bad for her in a lot of ways. And then she was inspiring in a lot of ways. And then there's also this other side, like my girl, my, my, my lady, my friend, what are you doing with this mobster? I don't know. You know, it was a different time, different standards. And as a historian, I am very well aware that we do not project modern standards onto past events, but there's just this huge dichotomy, I feel like, in their marriage. They were married until Al's death. Um, and, you know, according to the sources, they were, by all accounts, quote-unquote, happy. I mean, she always stayed with him. She was always devoted. She always supported him. Um, but she was also known, so she she often told their son, please don't be like your father, he broke my heart which reading that absolutely broke my heart because as we know, Al Capone was far from faithful. Um, and this is an, this is an interesting thing. So we can, we should probably just bring up the syphilis right now. Al Capone was, you know, we all know Al Capone had syphilis. That's actually how he ended up dying. But what we don't know, um, is when he contracted syphilis. A lot of people think, well, I saw I saw so many things in different sources. Some sources say that he had syphilis um, when he and May like had first gotten married and that they couldn't have any more children because the syphilis had made him sterile. And uh, there, it was well known that their son, Albert, Sonny, he had some hearing problems. 
And a lot of people wonder if that was like the syphilis being passed down to him and that maybe Al had had syphilis way before, given it to May and passed it down to Albert. Um, we don't know for sure. So some people think that at this time, um, Al already had syphilis or that maybe he contracted it later in Chicago. I just said Chicago. So weird. Chicago. We don't really know. Um, but another interesting thing about it is that um, Al would not get treatment for syphilis. And treatment was available at the time, but he just refused to get treatment. Um, they were really, really, they, I mean, he was aware of it early enough to get treatment that would have helped save him, but he just never did, which I find um, interesting. We'll, we'll use that. Anyway, so he and May were married in December of 1918. And, um, not long after that, probably a couple of months ago, Al finds himself in the big city of Chicago. I say that as if he wasn't already in a big city. He was in New York. But anyway, so Al Capone made his way to Chicago because our boy Johnny, you guys remember Johnny from five minutes ago, Johnny had, um, he had proposed this sort of national crime syndicate, essentially. And there was a, a crime boss in Chicago by the name of James Col Colosimo. Oh my gosh, Jordan. He was known as Big Jim, okay? This crime boss in Chicago was named Big Jim. And he asked Johnny to come out to Chicago as an enforcer of his crime world. And Johnny was like, cool, where do I sign? I'll be there. So he came out to Chicago and he brought Al with him. And, um, you know, Al was working in a, what is that word I'm looking for? A brothel. Thank you. He was working in a brothel. He was doing like various gambling things, you know, just kind of like low end stuff. Okay. But then, so this is 1919. Okay. When Torrio, I should just focus on the name, Johnny Torrio our boy Johnny, who I love, um, Johnny and Al go out to Chicago in 1919, and they're working for Big Jim. But then, mysteriously, on May 11th, 1920, Big Jim is murdered. Insert organ music, guys. Big Jim is murdered. Crazy. I wonder how that happened. Who could have done it? Crazy town, okay? But this left Johnny, our boy, to take over Big Jim's criminal empire with who as his right-hand man? Who? Um, yes, Al Capone, sir. So another interesting fact of Al Capone's personal life, I guess, May and Sonny actually did not join him in Chicago, I think, for about two years. I don't think they came out to Chicago from New York until about 1922, which I found really interesting. I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know if we know why. But anyway, it was a couple of years before they joined Al. So in 1920, um, Johnny becomes the crime boss in Chicago of Big Jim's empire. And Al is his right-hand man. Okay. Five years later in 1925, Johnny was shot at. And it was a pretty close call. Things with other gangs in Chicago had been really, really messy. Um, he was just... He was not into it, okay? Johnny was not into not being safe, which is funny because he was a crime boss. But anyway, 
this little attempt on his life was a little bit of a close call for him and he couldn't deal. So he decided to resign, which left Al at age 26 to become the boss of what was known as the Chicago Outfit. So Al Capone is 26 years old and the boss of the Chicago Outfit because Johnny has retired, which I love that for him. I think in our heads, we always think of crime bosses just like dying in a shootout or like dying in their old age with a cigar in their hand, which is probably what happened to Johnny. Um, But for some reason, I just, the thought of him retiring doesn't fit with that. And I just, I can't figure it out in my head, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. We're going to move into the Al being a boss phase of his life. And let me tell you, friends, this is a lot, okay? This, I could probably do an entire podcast about Al Capone's life because it was wild. There is a lot of information. A lot of crazy things happened. There's a lot of people involved, a lot of different gangs involved, and it's really, really um, messy. For example, there were a lot of establishments that refused to purchase um, quote-unquote protection from Capone, and these establishments were mysteriously blown up. So that's weird. Just have this slew of bombings, crazy. Um, And this resulted in over 100 deaths, actually, during the 1920s alone. So that's I mean, and that's just one one little thing that happened. I mean, he was also really into brothels, and he had a lot of what is that phrase? The one with the pie. Oh my gosh, he had his fingers in a lot of pies, and that sounds kind of inappropriate, but I'm sure that's something like the phrase. Anyway, there was a lot going on, and you know, even more than all of that is this this standard. You know, we got to talk about Al, (laughs) as if we haven't been doing that. We're going to talk a little bit about Al just in general. He is, I mean, he's Al Capone, you know, but he is the stereotypical 1930s gangster. And the reason that he is, is because everything that we've seen, all the movies, all the stereotypes, all like The Godfather, everything, like all of that is based off of Al Capone. So... He was, the reason that everything is like that is because it's Al Capone. I keep repeating the same thing. I'm sure you get what I'm saying, okay? He was known for dressing really, really fancy. He liked cigars and gourmet food and drink and, you know, female companionship. And he was really into the pinstripe suits and, and the fancy cars and the big houses. And, you know, you know, like he just was, he was Al Capone, guys. I think it's one of those things. I Do you think Al Capone woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and said to himself, I'm Al Capone? Probably. Like, I could see that happening. I don't, like, do you think he knew the full weight of what that meant? I don't know. Do any of us ever really know? I don't know. But it's interesting. So everything about Al Capone's time as a boss when he was, like, in the thick of controlling things, it just feels like this incredibly glitzy chaos. You know, around him, their people are exploding. 
things are going crazy. He has political and law enforcement protection. There's all this crazy stuff, and it's just covered by this sheen of gold glitter that makes it seem enticing and beautiful. And it's really, really interesting. I don't know. Maybe we could we could maybe we could talk about that. Let me know your thoughts on that. This this glitzy chaos. What is it about all of this that we find so romantic and enticing? What are your thoughts? I cannot believe I forgot to mention this. The fancy jewelry, guys. Al was really really into his expensive fancy jewelry and you know what that means? The pinky ring, okay? I don't know what it is about a pinky ring that is so iconic in a dark way, but it is. And you can't argue with me on that. That's a thing. Um, A quote from Al about, well, actually two quotes from Al about what he did. He never, he never ever tried to define what his job was. You know, he was really, really popular. He was in the public eye a lot. He was really famous, to be honest, a huge public talking point. And anytime anybody would ask him like, hey, what's your profession? Like just to see what he'd say, basically. He would say, I'm just a businessman giving people what they want, which to be honest, it sounds about right. I mean, alcohol and prohibition, speakeasies, like, hello, thank you. I say that as if I drink. I don't drink, but I'm sure that that's what people thought. (laughs) And he also said, all I do is satisfy a public demand, which again, is not inaccurate. He did in fact, satisfy a public demand. But I also think it's really, really interesting that he just, he was really vague about life, you know, like, oh, I'm just a businessman, you know, who knows? Um, So anyway, that happened. Um, And, oh, ow, it's just intriguing. I just, I think of a, a reporter going up to him and saying, Mr. Capone, what's your business? And him just like blowing cigar smoke and saying, I satisfy a public demand and just walking away. And in this scenario, he has a long trench coat like draped around his shoulders. His fedora's a little crooked. Anyway, I'm going off at this point. Let's continue on with the story. So there came a point when, you know, a lot of things, a lot of scary things were happening um, around Al and around his organization that weren't instigated by him. So Um, In one instance, his driver was murdered. His chauffeur, he was actually kidnapped and murdered. And I think dumped where Al could find him, which is really horrific and sad. Um, And then there were many, many attempts on Al's life. And in various ways, he always survived. But um, lots of attempts on his life. And many of his friends were also killed. There was just a lot of backlash from the other gangs in Chicago who were not particularly cool with Al being the way that he was. Um, So he started to get, one of the sources I found said he started to get very security-minded and wanted to get away from Chicago, which in my head just means I'm paranoid. Can we please get out of Chicago? Which is fair. He, I mean, a lot of people close to him were being killed, Um, which is really, like, I think it's interesting that he, um, he wanted to leave, but you know, his empire was still in Chicago. And so I mean, how can you really leave? You know, I don't know. That's just a side note. But one important thing to talk about is politics. So there was a mayor by the name of William Hale Thompson. Um, so 
it was well known as he was running, it was well known that he was not going to like strictly enforce prohibition. Um, he was hinting that to all of the speakeasies in town and allegedly, which is probably not an allegedly, like we can pretty much say this happened. He accepted a $250,000 contribution from Al. I did not put that into the inflation calculator, but okay, that's a lot of money now. So that's probably just a lot of money. Um, so there was, so when, so he's running for mayor. Okay. We are in now in 1928 on voting day there were voting booths all over the all over town right and in the sections of town where mayor i mean william thompson wasn't a popular candidate al's bomber which let's talk about the fact that he had a a, a bomber anyway his name was james belcastro he went to these sections of the city who were against William Thompson, and he put bombs at all the voting booths. And this this uh, resulted in about 15 deaths, which is really sad. Um, but Mayor Thompson was elected. In 1929, the New York Times connected out to the murders of the assistant state attorney, William H. McSwiggin, and chief investigator Ben Newmark and former mentor Frankie Yale, okay? So that's, like, there's a lot going on. He's he's dabbling in politics, getting people elected. He's trying not to get killed. New York is tying him to murders. Like, you guys, there's a lot going on. And then 1929 rolls right around. And not only 1929, but Valentine's Day, 19. 29. I don't know if any of you are picking up what I'm putting down so smoothly here. Um, but on Thursday, February 14th, 1929, Al Capone was actually in Florida. He had bought a home in Florida a year before, this huge mansion, and he spent most of his time there. So he's not even in town, right? He's not in Chicago. But in Chicago, on this gray February morning, seven members of the North Side Gang were brutally murdered in Lincoln Park, Chicago, in a garage. They were lined up against the wall and shot, execution style, in what was supposed to look like a police raid. Um, the murderers because I'm not get they were murderers they were dressed up in police uniforms and it was supposed to look like again a police raid but everybody pretty much knew from the outset that it wasn't seven members of a prominent gang are murdered everyone's like okay Al what are you doing um and images and news of this spread very very rapidly and because it was so brutal and horrific it really really sullied Al's image and um you know, people up to this point, people had given him kind of this benefit of the doubt sort of thing, you know, like, yeah, he's a criminal, but we can't really pin anything to him. And plus he like looks cool. So we're just going to love him anyway, you know, but this was a very public, brutal thing that a lot of people were able to see and it, it hurt his image greatly. And so to try to counteract this, Al started donating to charities and he started a Chicago soup kitchen during the depression 
which started later that year. Black Tuesday was in October of 1929, I believe. Um, but so he's, you know, this happens, he's trying to save his image, but it was also the breaking point for a lot of things in his life and in his career. Um, Mayor Thompson lost his reelection to Mayor Anton J. Cermak in 1931. And a lot of people, you know, this can be cited directly back to the Valentine's Day massacre because people were so upset with Al and um, they all knew that Mayor Thompson was in his pocket. So that changed. A lot of things changed for Al after the Valentine's Day massacre. And, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, was it worth it? Was it worth it, Al? No, that's seven people's lives. But here we are. Okay, so things didn't go well for Al after the Valentine's Day massacre, which is fine. You know, that tracks. Um, and a lot of things changed for him, particularly the opinion of most people in Chicago. As I just mentioned, um, it really, really damaged his public image. And there was one man in particular who was, he kind of just woke up and decided he wasn't cool with the way things in Chicago were going and it needed to change. His name was Walter A. Strong, and he was a publisher for the Chicago Daily News. And he said to himself one day, self, um, Chicago is a dumpster fire. We, I, we need help. Who, who can we call? So he gets on the phone and calls up his good friend, who just happened to be the president of the United States at the time, President Herbert Hoover. So he gets on the phone, ring, 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 says, hey, bro, Herbie, um, things in Chicago are absolutely wild. Like, it's it's crazy over here. And I don't know if you know this, but you're the president of the United States. And I was just wondering if you might be able to give us a little bit of a hand, you know. And good old Herbie said, Dude, bro, yes, this sounds like a great idea. Let's talk about this. Let's let's meet up. So on March 19th, 1929, one month after the Valentine's Day massacre, they have a secret meeting at the White House. And Herbert Hoover later wrote in his memoir that Strong said to him, quote, Chicago is in the hands of the gangsters and the police and magistrates were completely under their control. He said that the federal government was the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored. At once, I directed that all the federal agencies concentrate upon Mr. Capone and his allies, end quote. Which I love. There's something about that that just makes me go feral, like, yes, we're going to catch a bad guy. And then I remember that it's Al Capone and I feel kind of bad, but not really. So the president's like, hey, let's get on this guy. So right after that, a multi-agency attack on Capone is launched, okay? We've got the Treasury Department, the Justice Department, and many, many prohibition agents. They're all trying to get Al on something. And Strong, William, Walter, pardon me, Walter Strong, who first called the president, used all of the resources of the Chicago Daily News that he could to help all these agencies get Al. And... This is when the whole tax evasion thing comes in, guys, because I don't know if you know this, Al Capone was arrested for tax evasion. That's what they were able to get him on. And it was this kind of thing where it was like, hey, like we really, really need to get him on something. We need to get this guy in jail. What can we get him on? Let's like, please, can we get him on something? Okay. 
So just for reference, so that secret meeting happened on March 19th, 1929. And on March 27th, Al was arrested by FBI agents in Chicago. He was leaving a courtroom after testifying that he hadn't um, broken any laws of prohibition. He was in there testifying to that at the time. And they were able to arrest him for for so this is what happened. This is so convoluted. Please forgive me. So a little bit before this, a couple weeks before this, I believe, he was accused of bootlegging, essentially, and they asked him to come to court to testify. And he, I believe he was in um, Florida at the time, and he was like, hey, I can't come into court and testify because I'm sick. And they were like, okay, well, come in in a couple weeks. So this was that couple weeks later. He came in to testify. He said, hey, I'm not bootlegging. That would be crazy. But then he was arrested by the FBI because they said, hey, we have proof that you weren't actually sick a couple weeks ago. So that's contempt of court and we're arresting you. I don't have a lot of information. And by that, I mean, I have zero information about what happened after that. But he was let go at some point because he was then arrested in May in Philadelphia for carrying a concealed weapon. And um, he was indicted in Philadelphia for and sentenced to one year, which brings us to the Eastern State Penitentiary. Shout out to Shane and Ryan of BuzzFeed Unsolved and Watcher. This is where Al Capone was for nine months for carrying a concealed weapon and his cell is still there. You can go visit it if you haven't watched the episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved where Shane and Ryan go to Eastern State Penitentiary. Really, you need to watch it. Um, maybe I'll link it in the show notes. Who knows? I'm totally here for that. Um, Al Capone spoke to them. I firmly believe that. I'm a Bugara, but we're, that's, we're not here to talk about the paranormal. What we are here to talk about is that he was in prison in Eastern State Penitentiary for some time. And then he was released in March of 1930. And now, again, remember, he was only in prison for carrying the concealed weapon. And again, he wasn't even in prison for an entire year. So this multi-agency attack trying to take him down is still happening. We're all still trying to get Al Capone on something, okay? And... Every single time he was arrested and charged with with a lot of things that he was clearly guilty of, nothing ever stuck. He was charged with vagrancy, perjury, contempt of court, all these things. Like, they just couldn't make anything stick. And that was finally when the tax evasion thing came in. And they were like, hey, what about this? And an interesting tidbit about that is that Al's brother, Ralph, had actually um, spent time in prison for tax evasion. And so Al was like, hey, I know that they could get me on this, and that's a pretty serious sentence. Like, I could spend serious time in prison for tax evasion. What if I get my finances in order and fix that? But classic blunder, Al, okay, this did not save him. This actually further incriminate him, incriminated him because by admitting to all of his income that he hadn't paid taxes on and, and all of these things, he was basically just giving the government the information that they needed to charge him with tax evasion. 
So on October 17, 1931, Al Capone was convicted on five counts of income tax evasion and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Now, I know what you're thinking because we're all thinking this. 11 years he was convicted of tax evasion. Like, what? This man broke so many laws. He killed so many people. He was in charge of so much violence. Like, really? 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 Yes. The answer is yes. And the answer is also, bro, I know. I get it. I'm there with you. Okay? I get it. He was only sentenced to 11 years in prison. I understand that that is frustrating. Everybody else probably thought that a little bit as well. But the other thing to remember is that Al Capone was considered public enemy number one after Valentine's Day Massacre and, and all these things. And really, the idea was just, please, can we get him off the street? Can we get him in prison in any way? And this was the only way that they could do it. So even though he was not convicted of murder and the many, many, many other crimes that he committed, he was still convicted of a crime and sentenced to jail time. And by that, I mean prison time. Pardon me. So we just, we got to take what we can get at this point. Okay. We just need to get him in jail is what everybody's thinking. Okay. So he's sentenced to 11 years in prison and he begins his prison sentence in the Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in May of 1932 at the age of 33. So when he got there, he was, um, he was seen by a doctor, which I guess is standard, and he was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea, and he was also um, going through massive cocaine withdrawals at the time. So he was straight up not having a good time, um, but, you know, whatever, he's in prison, so this is what we wanted. He had a job in the prison at, um, his job was to sew soles on the bottom of shoes. And he was pretty, you know, he was fine at it. He was only allowed three visitors, which I think is interesting. Is that a thing still? Do you still only get like a, like, are there still only certain people that can come visit you? No, that can't be a thing because no, that's not a thing. But he was only allowed three visitors. His wife, his mother, and his son were the only people that could come um, and visit him. And at this time, you know, he was obviously not well physically. So any letters he was writing home, I mean, it, they were incoherent. It was his, his health was steadily declining. It probably wasn't made better by the fact that he was in prison and um, his mind was slipping. And it was at this point that his cellmate and a lot of others in the prison kind of sought to protect him because of this slipping in his mind. And um, eventually he was able to be transferred to Alcatraz Federal, Federal Penitentiary, wow, Penitentiary in San Francisco. I had no idea that Al Capone served time at Alcatraz. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Al Capone, Alcatraz. I'm probably the nine millionth person in this planet to come upon that, but it's funny. Anyway, he was transferred from Atlanta to Alcatraz in August of 1934. And um, two years later, in June of 1936, he was actually stabbed by a fellow prisoner named James Lucas. He was wounded, but he, um, he, he was able to recover. And he actually played the banjo 
and the Alcatraz Prison Band. Now, if you have seen, again, the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode about Alcatraz, you you remember Ryan and Shane talking about, like, was this even a prison? Like, everybody had instruments? Like, what the heck is this? And then you add in the fact that it was Al Capone just plucking away at his banjo. This is insane. Like, this is actually laughable. And I I don't know exactly why just the picture in my head there's a lot of cultural images clashing in my brain right now i just see shane and ryan and al capone playing banjos in alcatraz and that's what's in my head right now but anyway he was in the prison band and they were called the rock islanders which i love for them terrible band name love it and they had concerts every sunday and al actually um created several different song arrangements for his wife while he was in the prison band, which is interesting. So his decline in his, his, um, I want I keep wanting to say mental health, which I guess kind of works, but his, he, his syphilis, um, moved to his brain officially while he was in Alcatraz. And, um, so his health got steadily worse and, it was in February of 1938 that he was officially diagnosed with syphilis of the brain. So in his last year at Alcatraz, he was actually, he spent the whole time in the hospital ward. He was pretty just confused and disoriented the whole time. Um, in January of 1939, he was transferred to another institution in California for contempt charges. So what had happened, let's talk about this really quick. He was indicted for the contempt of court charges as well as for the tax fraud. So his tax fraud years were, he had, he done, he had done the time for those, finished that at Alcatraz, and then was transferred to another institution to serve time for the contempt charges. So he did that, but he was paroled um, later that year because his wife, May, appealed to the court that he needed to be paroled because he was not well and he had severely reduced mental capabilities. So at this point, he was, you know, he was, he was pretty incapacitated and officials in Chicago saw this as like, okay, the crime, like everything is now officially quote unquote fixed because Al Capone is incapacitated. He can't be the boss anymore. Um, which is interesting because the outfit, the Chicago outfit just continued. I mean, there was no trouble with police. Everything, everything continued. And it was just, there just wasn't the open violence that there had been during Capone's time as the boss. And so I think that's what allowed it to continue. And by the 1950s, the FBI discovered that the organization was still led by former Capone lieutenants and it was still it was still reigning supreme. So getting rid of Capone really didn't do anything to his organization except push it underground and basically make it harder to track, which is a little bit sad. But here we are. I say that a lot, but here we are. And I think that's because um, here we are. Anyway, so Al Capone gets paroled in November of 1939 because he's dying, basically. So he was released to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for treatment, but they actually said no. They said, hey, um, no, <laughs> we would rather not treat Al Capone. 
And um, so then he was taken to the Union Memorial Hospital, which said, okay, fine, sure, we will treat Al Capone. They gave him some treatment, and then in March of 1940, he went to his home in Florida. Um, And here's, okay, interesting fact, everybody. 1942 rolls around, okay? Al was one of the very first Americans treated by penicillin. But, I mean, he had had syphilis forever at this point. It was already in his brain. There was no way that the penicillin could cure him. But it did significantly slow down the progression of his disease. So, fun fact. I thought that that was really interesting. Like, I mean, at this point, Al Capone's not necessarily popular anymore. People don't necessarily care. But yet he was one of the very first Americans treated with penicillin. It's a fun fact. So here we are in the year 1946. Al is in Florida with his wife. He spent his last years there with his wife and with his grandkids. Um, In the year 1946, a physician and a psychiatrist from Baltimore came. They examined him, and they concluded that Al had the mentality of a 12-year-old at this point, which I'm going to say it. I feel like that's a little sad. Um, In January of 1947, this is when Al passed away. Um, It was, it's really interesting to hear this, this part of the story. He had a stroke, which then led to bronchial pneumonia and then cardiac arrest. And he died of heart failure on January 25th, 1947. Um, It's really anticlimactic, to be honest, to think of Al Capone as we know him, just passing away quietly in his home of heart failure. It's really, really intriguing. So, A week later, he had a private funeral in Chicago. He was originally buried at the, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Mount Olivet Cemetery in Chicago. Um, In 1950, Al, his father, and his brother Frank were moved to the Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois, where they are still today. Um, And here we are with Al Capone and this, the most notorious mobster in the country, maybe in the world, his personality, his character, his accent, mannerisms, his physical appearance. You know, Al Capone is alive and well in our minds, in our culture. And we are still, to this day, fascinated with him. This is such a summarized version of his life that I gave you. I I really wish I could have gone more into it. There's so so much I didn't talk about. If you're curious, please go do your own research. Let me know what you find. Let's talk. I would love to hear all of your thoughts because let's face it. Let's just say it. Okay. Al Capone wasn't a good dude. <laughs> he he did a lot of really bad things and yet we still view him as this romantic character, which is really common in these situations with um, mobsters or gangsters or, you know, whatever, we somehow find a way to make them not that bad because we see them as romantic figures. And I, I'm interested in that. And I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. I would love your thoughts and opinions on that. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. It is really long for a first episode. I apologize, but thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. And I can't wait to talk some more. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on Not Strictly History.